Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Sermanjeet Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Kirk Deitch, who is a microbiologist slash immunologist, or so I think, he won't really tell me, but <laughs> he's a researcher at the Wild Cornell Medical School in New York City, and he works on a parasite known as Plasmodium falciparum, and we're going to jump into that in a second, but uh, first, I'd like to thank you for chatting with me. Glad to be here. Yeah, and I would like to start with maybe a bit of a discussion about why malaria is so evil. So it, mal- malaria in general infects about three to 500 million people per year with up to a million deaths every year, and a lot of those deaths are young children. So why are young children more susceptible? Yeah, good question. So what we find in, um, so because malaria and malaria caused by Plasmodium falciparum is carried by mosquitoes, it tends to be um, most prevalent in parts of the world that are tropical that have lots of mosquitoes flying around, so you want wet places, warm places, um, and it, it spreads through mosquito bites. It turns out if you're in an area where there's a lot of uh, malaria transmission, as you get older, you suffer multiple infections over your lifetime. If you survive to be a teenager, typically you've generated enough immunity that you no longer have lethal infections. So it's only the little kids that are dying. But if we went into an African village that had really high rates of malaria transmission, you'd find that adults also carry parasites. They're just not suffering from the severe um, symptoms of the disease. Parts of the world where malaria transmission is not stable, so you typically only have big outbreaks during a flooding um, or a hurricane or um, some increase in the mosquito population. There you'll find adults are um, highly susceptible and get sick just like kids do. So um, the the specific um, problems with kids and high rates of disease and death in kids is specific parts of the world where... um, Malaria transmission is stable, and lots of people are getting infected all the time. So this parasite that you specifically work on, Plasmodium falciparum, that's one of the parasites that causes malaria, and it's one of the most, or is the most virulent parasite. What makes this specific parasite more virulent? Right. So a lot of people don't realize that malaria parasites are highly... um, common throughout the animal world. There are hundreds of species of plasmodium that infect birds and rats and lizards and snakes and monkeys, Um, but there are five species that infect human beings. Falciparum is the most virulent of the five. It causes the most morbidity and mortality, and that has to do with um, two basic characteristics of this parasite. One is that most parasites that infect people only infect your youngest red blood cells. So a small proportion, maybe 5 to 10% of your red blood cells are um, infectable by the parasites. They choose those specifically. So the number of parasites in an infected individual is kept low. Plasmodium falciparum will infect all your red blood cells. So you get uh-huh. very high levels of parasites. The second problem is something called cytohesion. So when falciparum infects a red blood cell and is growing inside of it, it has to avoid 
circulating through your spleen. So it does that by putting adhesive molecules on the surface of the red blood cell, and that allows the red blood cell to stick to your blood vessel walls, and that then disrupts um, your circulatory system, and it causes inflammation in various organs, and that causes organ failure. Um, and that is the second reason why falciparum is the most lethal of the, the human malaria parasites. So when you say that it causes red blood cells to stick to, I guess, blood vessels or epithelial cells, I'm, I'm picturing cholesterol, like kind of clogging an artery. Is it similar, is it, or is it not to that scale? It's so it can occlude blood vessels. Um, so it the parasites are adhering specifically in your capillaries um, after oxygen and CO two. Um, so on the venous side, after the CO two oxygen exchange has happened, and it can block those um, capillaries. Um, but remember, those capillaries are quite small. Oftentimes, they're only one or two red cell widths wide. Um, so that's so. In some ways, it's similar to atherosclerosis, where you get um, arteries being blocked by plaque. Um, this would be in the capillaries, as opposed to these larger blood vessels that are that are typical of when you have a heart attack or a stroke. Um, the other major component um, is inflammation. So when parasite or parasite infected cells are binding to your endothelial cells they're causing a localized inflammation response. So you have a lot of re, uh, release of what are called cytokines which from your immune system. Mm -hmm. And that's causing um, problems for the endothelial cells and sometimes breakage of the endoth endothelium and, and bleeding. And that's going to happen in capillary beds throughout your body. Um, but if it happens in your brain, then you get cerebral mm -hmm. malaria, which um, can be and often is lethal. Right. So this parasite can end up in your brain, like yeah, you said. That's right. and is there a particular uh, way that once it's in your body that it selects for which tissues to infect? So the parasites are, they're always inside of a red blood cell. So when they, they, every 48 hours they complete a replication cycle in one red blood cell, they burst that red blood cell and then they reinvade a new red cell. Um, so they're always inside a red cell, inside of your circulation. Um, they're not invading tissue cells per se. So toxoplasma does that, oh, but, okay. um, but plasmodium is staying in a red blood cell. Mm. So it is displaying a protein on the surface of red blood cells, that the sticky protein that allows it to adhere. The problem for the parasite is that your immune system will generate an antibody response against that protein. So the parasite has to continuously switch which type of protein it's displaying on the red blood cell surface mm. so that it can avoid this antibody response. So it has a wide variety of these surface proteins that it can display at any given time, and it's cycling through them over the course of an infection. Mm. Each one of those variants that, um, that mediate this adhesion uh, have a different specificity of what they bind to. So some, if you take variant number one, early in an infection, it'll bind to a specific receptor. That receptor might be largely displayed on the surface of lung tissue. Um, so those parasites would home mm. in and, and, and sit in capillaries in the lung uh, um, or in your gut or wherever. Um, on occasion, they will display a, a protein that leads to binding specifically in capillaries in your brain, and then you get cerebral malaria. Um, so the parasite isn't intentionally homing in on your brain. But it's also not random, right? It's, it's, a, it's also not random. Because 
one could say that, oh, so it just depends on where they end up sticking to the, the capillary wall, mm -hmm. right? But it actually has to do with what proteins they're right. producing and what receptors. So the, yeah. it doesn't appear that the parasite has an advantage to, to adhere in any particular tissue. So in that sense, it's not intentionally, to use an anthropomorphic mm -hmm. word, homing in on any particular tissue. But it will utilize all tissues in your body. And at some point in time, it will be the brain. And Great. Um, <laughs> if you sample tissue from um, post-mortem samples, people who have died of, very, of malaria, you'll find very specific populations of parasites adhering in very specific tissues. Um, a lot of work has been done on parasites that home in and bind in the placenta of pregnant women. Um, and that's, A, because it causes major problems in pregnancy. It's also true that after a pregnancy, it's easy to get tissue. Um, placenta tissue, so you can rescue parasites from the tissue and see exactly how they're adhering in the in the placenta. And it's similar to other organs. It's in the capillaries in the what's called the syncytiotrophoblasts. It's the the placental cells that are enabling exchange of nutrients and oxygen between the fetus and the mother. The parasites are right there in the circulation. So if the if the placenta gets infected, what effect does that have on the fetus? So it turns out the parasites don't cross the, the, the barrier between the circulation of the fetus and the mother because they have separate circulations. So the parasites in, aren't infecting the, the fetus. What they are doing is, is interrupting the exchange of nutrients between the mother and the fetus during fetal development. And that results in um, low birth weight, sometimes in spontaneous abortion um, or stillbirth. Um, because of the, this inflammation in the placenta. So just to ask maybe a, a technical question about how the, the statistics, the data is about the, the deaths. How, if let's say that a mother has a malaria infection, it's in her placenta, she's pregnant, and it turns out that because placenta was infected, malaria, uh, the, the parasites are there, they're using all the nutrients, and that let's say that the fetus was not born alive. Is that counted? In, like, how is that counted? How do you account for in the statistics? Well, a lot of times it doesn't get counted. Um, and this is a, a problem that if you wanted to talk to a demographer or an epidemiologist, they have to deal with all the time. Yeah. Um, in parts of the world where malaria is endemic, um, a lot of people die at home. A lot of people are sick at home. Um, so sometimes the numbers are difficult to come up with. And what do you mean by endemic? Just, oh, so yeah. endemic simply means a, a part of the world where malaria transmission is occurring all the time. Okay. Um, so that would be most of sub-Saharan Africa, um, parts of uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia, and then parts of South America. So in those parts of the world, um, some of them are very rural, um, and they're in the developing world, so um, a lot of times record-keeping isn't that accurate. So these numbers are hard to come by, and you'll typically see um, ranges. There are 300 to 600 million deaths from malaria, or um, 100,000 deaths from malaria in any given year. And how precise is that number? The other problem we have is that, um, let's say a child comes to an emergency room, and the child has malaria, and the child dies. A lot of times you will attribute the death to malaria, where if 90% of the kids have malaria, and a kid dies of a different infection, mm. it, 
that kid will also have malaria, so you can attribute it to malaria. But perhaps it was due to something else, meningitis oh, okay. or something else. Yeah. So um, there are very good scientists and physicians um, who are trying to sort this out, but it's not trivial to work out exactly what to attribute to malaria and what not. The same would be true of a low birth weight or a stillbirth um, mm -hmm. or a spontaneous abortion. Um, you'll often find parasites of the placenta, and what role they play is not always easy to sort out. You can um, do studies where you provide uh, anti-malarial therapy through the pregnancy and, and eliminate malaria as a confounding factor, and then compare that when you don't add anti-malarials. Mm -hmm. That gives you an estimate of the impact that malaria has on on pregnancy. Many parts of Africa now um, give women anti-malarials prophylactically when they become um, pregnant just to prevent um, any complications due to malaria. Speaking of anti-malarials, why is or why does it seem that malaria is, is tough to treat with drugs? So malaria is like any other microbe that we make antibiotics or antimalarials and protozoas to is that when you push populations of organisms very hard that way they'll develop resistance and that happens universally and you hear about it a lot with things like TB with um, other bacterial infections if you go to uh, uh, the emergency room or any hospital here in New York they'll be talking about methicillin resistant staph aureus MRSA um, so Plasmodium is no different. You are going to develop resistance if you use antimalarials for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, the story in malaria is quite epic because the, one of the first pharmacological compounds ever used as an anti-infective agent was quinine, which was developed um, from the chichona tree in South America where they boiled the bark and, mm -hmm. and drank the tea. And um, quinine turned out to be in the bark. And that's an anti-malaria that's been used for a very long time. Yeah. Chloroquine was developed um, during the Second World War as a synthetic anti-malarial. Wonderful drug. You could cure people for extremely low amounts of money. It was cheap to make and easy to distribute. But when you start using um, a drug like chloroquine in what's called monotherapy, so you treat um, individuals with a single drug, um, Parasites will eventually, you will select for parasites that have mutations that make them resistant to that drug. And chloroquine is used globally and in relatively, in a reasonable amount of time, but um, in the 70s and 80s, um, chloroquine became useless in most parts of the world because all the parasites were, were resistant to it. So you need to develop a new anti-malarial drug. And we've cycled through a bunch of drugs. The current drug on the market that... Um, is highly effective is called artemisinin and that's made from a Chinese herb so it's a natural product um, and tree bark Chinese yeah, herb right. is true so the, so the so the tree bark tree uh, tea tree bark tea uh, you said South America it was you mean were they using that to cure malaria or this were they just drinking the tea the story uh, that is told and I don't know of any reason to doubt it but it's um, perhaps one of the most amazing stories of serendipity that one would ever encounter in, in biology. So the story is that the high-altitude rainforests of Peru, the local indigenous population, um, would frequently, because they're living at high altitude in a rainforest, you get wet, you get cold, and you get chilled. 
they learned a long time ago before any kind of Western history that if they took the bark of this particular tree and boiled it into a tea and drank it, it makes a bitter um, tasting tea and it prevented them from shivering anymore. It relieved their shivers from their chill. Um, now it turns out quinine, in addition to being anti-malarial, is a muscle relaxant. So people uh, who suffer from muscle cramps are often given quinine to relieve muscle cramps. Mm -hmm. So presumably the indigenous Peruvians were using the chichono bark tree to treat as a muscle relaxant for their wow. chills. So there was no malaria, no human malaria in the New World until the Africans and Europeans arrived and brought malaria with them. Of course. So the local population suffered then from malaria. And one of the symptoms of malaria is you get fevers and chills. And so when they would shake and get and shiver from the chills of malaria, they made their um, tea, which not only relieved the shivering, serendipitously, it also wow. happens to be a beautiful anti-malarial drug and actually kills the parasites. Um, and then there are brilliant stories that you can read about in, in history textbooks, and there's a couple of popular books that came out to tell these stories. The Chichona bark became known in Europe as the Jesuit bark because the Catholic missionaries, the Jesuits, who were in the New World, brought it back with them as an anti-malarial drug. Um, specifically to places like Rome, um, where there was a lot of malaria at the time. So what, what timeline are we talking about? We're talking in the 1600s, okay. 1700s, so they would bring this back. Um, and it was known as Jesuit bark, and it was effectively quinine. Um, but some of the non-Catholic countries, after the Reformation, refused to use it because it was Catholic bark, and so they wouldn't <laughs> use it. Um, but then it was ultimately shown to be effective um, particularly for, for instance, the British when they were trying to make inroads into Africa. So there's a lot of social um, and cultural implications of this because prior to um, the widespread use of quinine, it was very difficult for Europeans to penetrate into African continent because they suffered terribly from malaria. But once quinine was known as a way to cure it, it allowed the Europeans to move more <laughs> into the African continent. That's great. So, yeah, it's it's all it's a it's a wonderful story of history of um, infectious agents and biology and biochemistry and um, culture and religion and it's it's a wonderful, fascinating, interesting story. That is really fascinating. And and the and the the drug that's used today, the most recent one you said is is made from a Chinese herb. Yeah, it's called the if I remember correctly, it's called the Chinese sweet wormwood. Um, and it was originally made as a tea as well. Um, now we make it, uh, we extract it, and, and we purify it. So what I'm getting is that drinking tea is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> At least in this instance, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. The other place many of you um, are experienced with quinine is it's the, um, it's the active reagent in um, tonic water. So if you have a gin and tonic, you'll see it. Uh, they all say it contains quinine. And so the tonic of tonic water is, of course, quinine. And oh. so the story there, which I don't know if it's true or not, is that when the Brits were in South Asia, India, Pakistan, etc., um, they needed to take quinine for their anti-malarial treatment. And so they mixed it in water to make tonic water, and it tastes a lot better if you put gin in it, so they make gin and tonics. <laughs> so uh, 
and this is all malaria history. It's all about oh, anti-malarial man. treatment. So, but why? But okay, so even so, that was back then. So tonic water today still has yeah, quinine. On it. So we're looking at a bottle of Canada Dry tonic water, and it says right on the, the bottle that it contains quinine. That's exactly so right. So why why does it still contain quinine? So now, of course, it's not an anti-malaria. <laughs> we're not going to get anti. We're not going to get malaria walking around the streets of Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's hope. Uh, but nonetheless, if I go to the local pub and I ask for a gin and tonic, it's going to come with tonic and it has um, quinine in it. If we were to take tonic water and then um, seltzer water and you taste them side by side, tonic water has a very distinct taste. It has this slightly bitter um, taste that is the quinine. And um, I teach a class here where we go through a lot of parasitology and, and historical um, anti-malarial papers. And we all, on the last day, we all drink gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> and we we do the taste test. So you can take seltzer water, take tonic water, and then you can take gin and tonic. Mm-hmm. And you can see the progression of taste in each one. And the tonic, or the quinine, gives a distinct flavor to the tonic water, which people are used to. So we drink it now for taste, not for anti-malarial properties. But it's also a muscle relaxant. It is, yes. Now, the dose <laughs> you're going to yeah, get from what the here dose, is, yeah. <clears throat> and in fact, the dose you'd get from tonic water isn't enough to cure malaria anymore either. Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, we can taste it if you want. <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? See if you can taste the slightly bitter nature of the, of the tonic, the quinine. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, middle of a podcast, tasting some tonic water with mm-hmm. quinine. Thanks to the British? Thanks to the Brits, Thanks that's the right. <clears throat> oh, wow. So okay. it's there, right? It's there. Now, tonic water you get here is also sweetened, so it has a little bit of, of sugar to it, but that mm-hmm. bitter tint on your mm-hmm. tongue, you, that's, that, the quinine. that's the quinine. Oh, wow. You put a splash of gin in there, and then you mm-hmm. put the juniper and everything. <laughs> and it's, it's this lovely flavor that people who like gin and tonics like to drink, and it's mm-hmm. all about malaria. I always wondered <clears throat> what tonic water was, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the half scientist in me thought it was like deionized water or something. <laughs> I, didn't <know. laughs> I didn't know that there was basically a drug in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and it's all related to malaria's history. Mm-hmm. Wow! So, the the specific parasite that you work with, it you describe that it when it infects cells, our body has an immune immune response, and that involves uh, taking a piece of the proteins that the parasite has on the surface and using that to create antibodies against the parasite. Mm-hmm. Parasite, not this one, a lot, maybe, if not all, a lot of parasites have a way to get around this. They have different proteins that they can present on their surface. And that I, and is what I guess we can call uh, antigenic variation. Is that, is that mm-hmm. fair? And that's a big part of your research, mm-hmm. right? So can you talk a little bit about what research you do concerning antigenic variation and uh, plasmodium falciparum. Sure. So, as you mentioned, a lot of infectious organisms have the ability to cycle through surface antigens that they display. So, as the host makes antibodies to one, it switches to a different one. The host makes antibodies to that one, it switches to a third, and they cycle through, and it gives you a lengthy infection. So, that's antigenic variation by definition. Lots of creatures do it. So, we study how plasmodium falciparum specifically does it. And so... In the genome of Plasmodium falciparum, 
they have approximately 60 genes that all encode a different form of the protein that goes on the red cell surface. And so for a parasite to be able to extend the long-term infection in its human host, it wants to be able to use those 60 genes in the most efficient manner possible. So the most efficient way to do it is to only express one at a time, put that on the surface, let the host generate an antibody response. This is going to take six or eight days to get a high titer antibody response. And then at that moment, when your population is being wiped out by this antibody response, some of the population has to switch to a different gene, and then they reestablish the infection. And if you stretch that out as long as possible, you can keep an infection going for better than a year, um, a falciparum infection. So in the genome, they have 60 of these genes, each one that encodes a different form of this protein. And so the puzzle for us is to figure out how the parasite only expresses one at a time, and then how it can switch between one to another. And on a molecular basis, that's an interesting trick because it is coordinated the simultaneous silencing of the previously active gene to activation of a new gene. And it has to do it in a random way such that you're always generating a new response. So that involves lots of things like promoters and enhancers and DNA sequence recognition and something called chromatin. That's how your DNA is folded up. And so what we found is that the parasite um, condenses all of the genes that are silent so that they're essentially squashed up where the enzymes can't turn the gene on. And only one is in an open state where it's actively being expressed. So this, this is open-close. You're talking about the uh, chromatin fibers, right? So a, a lot of people may not know, and we discuss it all the time in, in any molecular biology class, is that DNA is not present in cells in a straight line. Right? It's, 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 it has the uh, more complex structure. In, in addition to just uh, the, the, the bases themselves uh, being monitored, it has a uh, more complex structure. It's, it's bound around some proteins called histones. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what you're talking yeah. about, right? So it's the parts of the DNA um, that are being shut off or turned on. It, it's related to the histones. That's right. right. So if, if your histones are arranged into something called a nucleosome, which is spherical, loosely speaking. So it would look like you took a, a telephone wire and wrapped it around a tennis ball. And so you have a string of tennis balls, and you wrap the wire twice around each, um, around each tennis ball. Then what you can do is alter how tightly you condense those tennis balls into a tight structure. And you can put little chemical modifications onto each tennis ball, which opens or closes up the condensed nature of this fiber. And that turns out to be what controls which of these specific genes is on. So of this family of 60, only one is in an open structure to be active. The rest are all condensed. And then the, par the parasite nucleus, when it wants to switch which gene is active, condenses the previous active, previously active one and opens up another one. So the folks in my lab, um, we've been working for a long time to figure out how the parasite does that because it has rules to, it has to obey. One is that you always have to have one of these genes on. If you don't, you don't put an adhesive molecule on the surface and you get wiped out by the spleen. So you have to have one on. But you only want to have one on, otherwise you'll go through your repertoire of genes too quickly. And then you have to be able to switch between the two. So not just my lab, several labs around the world, we're all working on this problem. And we've all come up with little pieces of the puzzle um, and it's becoming more clear all the time how this works, but 
the big picture still eludes us. So, mm -hmm. lots of work to be done. All right, but this this process of anthogenic variation is one of the reasons that these parasites are just yeah. so deadly, right? Yeah. So let's anthropomorphize these guys for a second. Um, parasites. What do they want? <laughs> What's their motive? Why? Why are they trying to kill us? So okay, this is a good question. <laughs> Oh, this is a philosophical question is in, in addition to being a biological question, and people wonder about this a lot. So the parasites, they just want to replicate, and just like every other biological organism, the idea is to pass your genes on to the next generation. So malaria parasites of all flavors, that infect all organisms around the world, they all have two hosts. So they have a vertebrate host, and then they have a mosquito host. And they replicate in the vertebrate host, and then they undergo sexual recombination in the mosquito. And so then the mosquito transmits it to the next host. So all the malaria parasite wants to do is replicate and get into a mosquito and then get back. Of the five species that infect humans, most of them almost never kill people. All they do is replicate, and you feel lousy. But the parasite doesn't really care if you feel lousy and you get sick, um, but you don't die. And, and the, it's allowed allows the parasite then to propagate to a new generation. Falciparum <clears throat> is more lethal and it does cause um, death. But quite frankly, the death rate isn't. I mean, we think it's horrific that it might kill a million kids. Right. But if you think that four hundred or five hundred, if you compare it to the infection rate, yeah, um, the death rate is actually relatively small and probably doesn't impact its ability to transmit from person to person. Those individuals are are dying. But the the three hundred or five hundred million—that's all five strains, right? Or is it just the majority of falciparum? of those are falciparum and vivax? Um, okay. So the other three human species are pretty rare. Okay. I mean they're around, but you don't mm -hmm. see them as much. So of the let's say there's four hundred million cases last year, probably three hundred million are falciparum. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. So it's very efficient at transmitting. Mm -hmm. And so you said that your your lab and other labs around the world are working on the same problem. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of how science works or progresses, mm -hmm. right? This is, generally, there's not just one person thinking mm -hmm. about one thing and another person thinking about another. It's, it's a team of people in different places using different methods, mm -hmm. right, different approaches. So how, how, do, you, how do you... I guess, keep up. Do you effectively collaborate with, with other labs, or is it more of a competition? So there's so both, right? There's both, okay. Yeah, and I think competition is a good thing in that it mo keeps you motivated. It also um, provides motivation to double-check each other's work. And mm. So you tend to be careful because you know somebody's going to repeat your experiments. And if you've done something wrong, they're going to make sure that the world knows you did it wrong, um, partly just to not mislead the community. Um, but it's embarrassing. So having a little bit of competition between each other is a good thing. Um, having said that, we, in many instances, we directly collaborate, meaning we share reagents and we share ideas. We meet each other typically once or twice a year at an international meeting, and we get together and we describe unpublished data. 
Um, so those are all ways that we collaborate with one another. Um, of course, science, like every other human endeavor, has personalities. <laughs> Some are highly collaborative and congenial and collegial. Some are not. So some people collaborate more with each other than others. Um, the malaria community is not, is not bad. Um, it's not a cutthroat community. One reason it's not is um, malaria researchers, we tend not to be motivated by profit, largely because there's not a lot of money to be made by studying malaria or even by generating anti-malarial compounds. Um, there's, poor people in developing countries are not a, a huge source of wealth for somebody who's trying to make um, drugs or um, vaccines. Mm -hmm. You're going to make a lot more money on male pattern baldness and obesity <laughs> than you are on anti-malarials. Yeah. So most people working on basic biology of, of things like malaria are doing it in an academic setting where your currency is how clever you can be and what sort of things can you decipher biologically. And that's what motivates us. So um, there's some ego driving there. It's fun to be the smart guy and mm -hmm. have figured something out. Um, and so there is some competition in that sense. Um, but we're pretty collegial, and we do. And the one thing we're hyper-motivated to do is when we discover something is to get it published out there. So we can be the first, mm -hmm. and that we can um, show off how clever we are. That's a good thing. It means that we're not sitting on and being secretive about data. It's coming out rapidly. So that's a good thing. But at the same time, you have to be accurate. Oh, right? yes, right. Studies, otherwise, that's right. someone's going to... Do your experiment and see if you did it wrong and tell everybody, which is, I guess, the scientific community equivalent of a disc. Yes. Which is <laughs> so you want to be fast, but you want to be accurate. You're right. You're, after, you're right on the mark. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, it's the, the nature of the game we play. So that's how it's done. So in, in, in the research that uh, you do currently, how, how much of it has it, have you been able to kind of, I guess, how much progress have you made with data or help from other groups? Like how, yeah, just to get an idea of how collaborative it is. Sure. Um, so, for instance, um, we've done a lot of work um, trying to decipher this VAR gene or this variant gene expression pattern. And a couple of labs are working on the same topic and of course we publish and then periodically we um, publish what are called review articles where we go through all of the topics um, that each other have published and we condense it into an overall model. And so in terms of information that's collaborative. What tends to be even more so like directly collaborative is as we do our experiments you develop tools. A lot of times you, these are things when you're a uh, <clears throat> geneticists like me are working on things called plasmids, DNA that turn genes on, turn genes off, you knock out genes. So once you develop a reagent or a tool, you share it with everybody and you mail it around the world. So we do that all the time. Mm -hmm. Then there are people who work on other aspects of malaria biology and they're generating their tools to study how parasites invade red blood cells or how they um, metabolize certain compounds. So they'll make tools, and then they make that available um, okay. for collaboration. And in fact, what we have is what's called a repository for reagents. It's in um, Virginia, and it's called um, the Malaria Reagent 
um, repository, and you can go there and order any reagent that anybody's ever made on malaria work. And so for people who might not be familiar, what is a reagent? So a reagent is, is anything that you've developed um, that can be used in an experiment. So it can be simply a chemical, it can be a drug, it can be um, a plasmid DNA, it can be a um, strain of bac uh, bacteria or a strain of plasmodium that you grow in the lab. Anything that is a useful tool for experiments is considered a reagent. You mentioned your geneticist, so your PhD was in genetics. That's right. So how, how does, how, and after reading a couple of your papers, it's very evident that you seem to, uh, you, you like to have at least some uh, genetic approach, some, right, some, uh, how do you incorporate that into your falciparum research, falciparum yeah. research? <clears throat> so we grow parasites here in the lab. And the nice thing about studying plasmodium falciparum is it's the one human parasite that you can grow in a culture flask or in a Petri dish. Mm. We have to give it human red blood cells, um, but it will invade and it will propagate in, in the lab. That means we can study aspects of the parasite um, that don't require a human host. So if we wanted to study the human immune response, it's hard to do that in a culture flask or in a Petri dish. But you can study things like metabolism if you want to do drug development. You can study things like gene expression if you want to study the stuff we do in terms of genes turning on and off. And you can insert, um, delete, and modify the genome of the parasite. So we can then see how the parasite um, behaves in turning genes on and off for any particular um, phenotype, meaning the physical characteristics that result from modifications you make to the genome. Mm. So that's pretty convenient if you're a geneticist because we can take malaria parasites in the culture flask. We can form a hypothesis for how a particular gene is influencing um, the proteins that are displayed on the red cell, or how efficiently it invades a red cell, or how it has become resistant to a drug. And we can make changes to the genome, so we can alter a gene, and then we can test our hypothesis. Is that gene, in fact, responsible for resistance to chloroquine, or turning a gene on that goes to the red cell surface? And so we use genetics and molecular biology to decipher any type of characteristic of the parasite that we think is important for disease or pathogenesis um, or human infection. So um, genetics can be quite powerful for that. In terms of the, the modifications on the genome when the parasite changes its, uh, the proteins that are present on itself, um, you, you've done some work into finding specific mechanisms by, by which that happens, mm -hmm. which other uh, entities are recruited, which proteins or uh, something else is recruited to make those changes happen. So when you're developing a drug, it's uh, perhaps something that's not naturally found in a tree bark or something. You're, is it fair to say that what you, what you, the reason that we're, you're doing this research is to find a specific pathway and get it right? so that you can, I guess, design a molecule to disrupt it? And that, is, is that a fair way to, is yeah. that how drugs? That's, that's the American scientific enterprise has largely been focused in that way. Mm -hmm. Sort of, um, the model is that in academia, um, 
we do research, typically government-funded research, so taxpayer-funded research, and we try to decipher the basic biology of whatever we're studying, whether it's cancer, development, um, fertility, and in the case of my department, infectious diseases. So our mandate is to simply work out how these mechanisms function and to see how an organism works or how a pathway functions. And your point is correct then. Once you figure out all the pieces of the puzzle and how you figure out how the mechanism works, then you can design ways to disrupt it. Generally, um, academia works out the basic pathways and then industry figures out how to come up with a compound that will disrupt it. So the pharmaceutical industry steps in at the end. Um, that model breaks down sometimes if the pathway that you're studying, while it may be really important, is not very profitable. Because industry is a profit-dependent enterprise. Um, pharmaceutical industry, any particular company, is not going to be successful if it's losing money. Um, we know that. So for things like malaria or some of the bacterial infections, and particularly diseases that infect the developing world, there's not a lot of profit margin there. So industry has not been motivated to pursue those. So now we have um, some philanthropic or um, taxpayer-funded enterprises to actually do drug development. So the Gates okay. Foundation, there's something called the uh, Medicines for Malaria Venture, MMV, those types of enterprises then will take the basic science we do and actually do true drug development on it. But you're right. When we develop a particular enzyme or we discover a particular enzyme that's important for some aspect of parasite biology, identifying an inhibitor of that enzyme, which could be a drug, um, will then disrupt things. And we've done a little bit of that here, not with the intention of actually bringing a drug to market. That's not our, our, our goal. We would love to have that somebody do that. But we've taken known pharmaceutical compounds, applied them in a targeted way to, to test the hypothesis we have about a particular pathway. In other words, we determine a mechanism and we think, oh, if our mechanism is correct, this pharmacological compound should disrupt this mechanism. Oh, okay. And then we test it, and in fact, we often get really interesting results from those kinds of experiments. Mm -hmm. And that could be then taken and developed into a drug um, potentially in the future. And when you said interesting results, that doesn't always have to mean that your hypothesis was correct, right? <laughs> that's right. And that's an important part of science, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, every, there's, there's no such thing as an experiment from which you learn nothing, as, as they say. Even, even if your hypothesis is proven to be incorrect, you still learn something that will help you with your, develop your next hypothesis. And make Frequently, it disproving your hypothesis is much more interesting than <laughs> yeah, proving your exactly, hypothesis. Yes. So... You're right. We, we try to be unbiased about that. You form a hypothesis, and then in an attempt to prove or disprove it, you often learn something, regardless of which way. There's, I, I think about this all the time, and it's, it's, it's very, very, uh, I guess it, it has to be a very uh, common trait, or maybe even a necessary trait among researchers, such as yourself. You, you have to have some sort of humility Right? And because and, I, I feel like nine times out of ten, you're proven wrong. Yeah. Sure. Right? And, and although, like you said, it's more interesting because then you can go from there in a bunch of different directions. Yeah. But it still requires something to, to help you keep going. It's, a, right? 
it's an interesting balance because you spend a lot of time working on something. And it's easy to get um, attached to a particular hypothesis. And we try as scientists to train ourselves not to be emotionally attached to a particular um, hypothesis so that you're, you don't fool yourself into believing it when, in fact, it, it's incorrect. So you want to be open-minded about it. And you'll often find when you go and watch um, oral presentations from very good scientists, they're often very agnostic about what they're speaking about in terms of what's going to be the correct mechanism or the incorrect mechanism about something. And they often, often show a lot of humility as well, thinking, well, we figured it would be this. Turns out we were wrong. <laughs> and they're often very open about admitting that. Um, and the more open-minded you are about that, the more creative a scientist you're going to be. And science, as it's taught in a classroom, it's not like that. At least in the very beginning <laughs> stages. In, now, now that I'm, I'm in a graduate program, I'm in a master's program, taking graduate science classes, I'm... I'm well, not that I, I didn't realize this, but at least the professors are presenting us with open-ended questions. We're saying that we still haven't figured this out. Okay? But So we know that this pathway works this way, but this little piece right here, we're not too sure. So now it's, when you get to this level, it, they're, you know, you're more forthcoming with, with uh, the doubts. But I feel like in high school, <laughs> definitely not, and even in undergraduate classes, it's, it's not the case. That's not really how science is taught. Yeah, you'll, most people will notice when you're in high school or you're um, in an undergraduate, you typically learn science through a textbook, which that means it's typically very well-established science. Mm -hmm. And so you're learning facts, and you're learning mechanisms, and you're learning the scientific method. But when you get to graduate school, and the farther you move in as a researcher, so graduate school, medical school, postdoctoral fellowship, and then as a full-time researcher, you're not reading textbooks anymore. You're reading primary literature, which that means a series of experiments explained with a hypothesis at the end or a model ex that uh, explain the data. And they should be, and they generally are divided. Here's the data. Here's our interpretation of the data. The interpretation is frequently wrong. Hopefully the data is correct. And if the data is wrong, then you are embarrassed, and, and that needs to get corrected in the mm -hmm. literature. Um, so when we go to meetings, the folks in my lab or myself, we'll present data, and then we'll present our model. And it's not embarrassing if your model's wrong, mm -hmm. because that's just your way of interpreting the data. And somebody else will have a different interpretation. And that's what makes science both interesting and um, difficult, because sometimes your model doesn't make any sense, and it's really hard to come up with a new model. That's mm -hmm. the challenging part. Right. Um, but you're right, when you come to to a, a higher level of training in basic science. The, that's the nuance. One learns that there, are, there, are, there is data and there are models, and they are two right. different things. Exactly. So speaking of challenges, what in, I guess let's talk about graduate school a little bit. What challenges did you face in graduate what, what did you feel was the toughest part about, whether the genetics field or... Uh, biology research in general, or yeah, like sure. So the, the the thing you learn when you move into a full time lab as a graduate student. So now you're working towards a master's or a PhD. So you, you've got a project, and you 
of generating data and trying to publish papers and then writing a thesis. So the immediate challenge you have when you get there is that your knowledge base is lousy. Um, you need to learn a lot. Right. And you have to learn a lot about a very narrow subject because you're doing mm -hmm. a thesis on some, some very tightly defined project. And that's a little bit different about, for instance, how one goes about learning in medical school where you learn a lot of stuff about a very broad mm -hmm. aspect of typically human health. Where when you're doing a PhD, you're very narrow focused. Um, so you have to acquire a lot of knowledge, and you have to, not just about the background of this subject you're, you're learning, um, but also technical aspects. How do you do this experiment? How do you use this piece of equipment? How do you extract that thing from whatever cell you're trying to grow? Mm -hmm. So you spend a lot of time just trying to catch up with everybody else. So that's your initial challenge when you right. um, start a PhD. Mm -hmm. And that takes a long time, um, just to get up to speed. Then, of course, you look, you've suddenly run into the aspect of personality um, mm. because you're going to be working for uh, a principal investigator, a professor, the guy who runs the lab, or the woman who runs the lab. And science is quite competitive these days. We're all working on taxpayer dollars, which means we need data and we need results and we need interesting results so that we can submit a grant proposal and get it funded. Mm. And if your graduate student is lazy or if your graduate student is, has seven thumbs and can't make an experiment work, uh, the graduate student is obviously um, frustrated, but the professor gets frustrated as well because time is wasting. And so there can be some tension in the lab. And I certainly, there was tension between me and my PhD advisor um, about these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a lot of excitement when an experiment works and you generate really interesting data and you're writing papers. And so there's, there can be a real buzz in the lab. It is, um, there's a moment that if you're lucky enough, you will experience one day where you do an experiment and you discover something and you realize that there is only one person on the planet who knows that. And you're that person. Um, that's and that's yeah, kind yeah. of a cool thing. That's right? exciting. Yeah. And then you get to write a paper and then suddenly you reveal that to however small your particular scientific community is. And, and then it turns out to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you hope that it's not wrong. Um, but those are really rewarding things that you do, intellectually very rewarding. And that is the kind of thing that is a great aspect that you will experience with the other people in the lab. So you, you experience frustrations and you experience um, victories together. And um, those relationships can be challenging. Um, so that's another aspect of graduate school. It's, it's difficult and challenging. You have to deal with it. And then, of course, when you graduate, then what do you do next? And um, you typically, if you're in academia, you go do a postdoctoral fellowship somewhere, and you endure kind of the same environment, except that you're much broader knowledge base, much greater experience, you tend to be way more productive. Mm -hmm. um, and then there will eventually come a time where you have a real desire to be independent. And so then you have to look around for your own independent place where you can go have a lab run your own group. Um, and along the way, it is not uncommon for two researchers, one being the professor and the other one being the postdoc or the postdoc and the graduate student or whatever. And you'll have a scientific disagreement. Mm -hmm. and you'll want to approach a problem using different methodologies or you form different hypotheses. And you have to um, 
come to a consensus on that, and that can raise tension. That can be difficult. Because remember, if you're doing interesting novel science, nobody else has ever done this before. So there's generally not a right answer on what you should be doing. Yeah, you're making it up right. as you go along. Yeah. And you'll have a different opinion than somebody else. And that will cause tension. Um, that's not a bad thing. Um, when you have tension, you have disagreements in a lab, that means you're doing something provocative. That means you're doing something interesting. So that is the root of scientific discovery. That is how original things get done. Mm -hmm. And the wackier an idea is, <laughs> the more likely it is to be wrong. But if it's right, it's more likely to be profound and have a huge impact. So you're weighing all those things along the way. Um, and the people who are really good at it, people who make really amazing discoveries and win Nobel Prizes, they tend not to be the people that are crazy smart. Like if you were sitting down and talking to somebody, mm. you'd say, oh, this guy's kind of ordinary. Um, and I think it's there's an intuition that people have, really gifted people have, that they their hunches tend to be right. And they tend to be able to sniff out the really interesting novel discoveries. Mm. And I'm, it's kind of difficult for me to peg what that characteristic is. It, doesn't, it isn't reflected on GREs and SATs and, and those mm -hmm. kinds of what we tend to think yeah. of as intelligence. Mm -hmm. it's, a diff it's a more subtle um, intuition that they have in looking at data and looking at experiments. It's a creativity, right? It's yeah. just a, it's a, it's a, a different way of... It, yeah. yeah, a different way of looking at things. Maybe part of it is just being tenacious in your approach, sure. right? yeah. Trying a lot of different that. ways, right? Maybe I don't want to say it's always just volume because then you could come up with just ten wrong theories. But it's, I guess, if you keep going, even if if, if your first ten have been wrong, I think that. But yeah, absolutely, you have to be. Um, yeah. You can't have your ego shadow shatter every time that you your hypothesis wrong is wrong. You have to have that um, ability to continue to soldier on. So that's part of it. Yeah. So when did you realize that you were you were ready to sign up for the struggle? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that's a good question. Um, so I went as an undergrad with no real clue what I wanted to do. I didn't. I wasn't from um, an upbringing where there was a presumption I was going to be a scientist or a physician or a lawyer or a businessman. That my family had no concerned what I studied. Mm -hmm. So I went to college completely open-minded. I fell in love with biology and science and chemistry as an undergrad. And um, I liked the idea of doing research, so I decided to go to graduate school, mostly because I thought it, I would enjoy it and find it rewarding. In some ways, I was a bit short-sighted in that I wasn't really planning on what I was going to do in the long term. Mm -hmm. It was only when I... Uh, was finishing my PhD that I started thinking about long-term careers, and then I thought I wanted to stay in academia. Um, having said that, then I went to the National Institutes of Health for my postdoctoral fellowship, which is not in academia, and I wasn't teaching at all. I oh, went okay. there exclusively because I was fascinated by a particular biological question that they were asking. It had to do with, with this thing we were talking about, mm -hmm. the ability of malaria parasites to undergo antigenic variation. So I went there specifically to learn that and then came back to academia afterward. 
So it was a long-term evolution of my own particular career choices. Um, basically, I was just chasing what I thought was fun and interesting. <laughs> Which is, I guess, it worked out for you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a cool way to right. approach yeah. things. Yeah, I think it's important if you're gonna be a scientist and you want to follow basic research. This probably applies to other career tracks as well. You want to do something that that is really motivating and fascinating to you. Otherwise, you're going to be miserable, regardless of how successful you are. Mm. Um, if you enter a career for the wrong reasons, you enter it because there's familial pressure to do it, or because you are interested in a particular monetary compensation, um, you may be successful in gaining that monetary compensation, but if you're miserable every day when you go to work, then your quality of life is going to be lousy, mm -hmm. and you're better off um, trying to do something that you find self-motivating. So I was going to ask you for a piece of advice, but I think that was a fantastic piece of <laughs> advice. Okay. So thank you very much. For Absolutely. I really appreciate this conversation. Okay. Best of luck with your research. Thank you. Termination of current scientist, the human episode. Stay breezy.